If you will, make your way with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, and verse 21. We're going to consider the remainder of this chapter today with a primary emphasis on verses 21 through 23, and a message entitled, The Baptism of Jesus, a Testimony. The idea of a testimony is understood in several ways. When a person is brought into a courtroom and under oath, Uh, presumably they're supposed to tell the truth about something that they have observed or something that they have experienced. They're telling their story uh, and communicating whatever it is that they have seen or heard or experienced. And when we speak of a Christian testimony, we're thinking about a person who has come to faith in Jesus and is a follower of Jesus and who is sharing with other people Uh, what took place in their life in order to get them to that point and then even after. So when we talk about sharing your testimony of faith, you're talking about what your life was like before Christ, how you came to that point of repentance and faith and came to be a disciple of Jesus, and then what your life has been like since you came to know Jesus. We also provide testimonies sometimes of things that God is doing in our lives. We share the blessings and the burdens of the experiences that we go through and how God is working. And a testimony serves as evidence. It's a declaration of fact, in a sense, which communicates something that is important to other people who are either listening to or watching what you're saying and what you're doing. We typically think of testimonies as being communicated by words. The one we're considering today in Luke chapter 3 includes both a physical event, which carries with it some very important symbolic things that take place around the baptism of Jesus. And then we also find words from God himself when heaven was opened and the words of the Father came down in blessing upon the Son. And I would say to you that the baptism of Jesus as a testimony is first convincing in the sense that it tells us some facts of what happened to show us something about Jesus. It's also compelling in regard to the fact that if we want to be like Jesus, then we want to follow in his footsteps and in what he commanded. And it's convicting because it's telling us that there's more than just going through the motions. It's actually identifying our lives with Jesus so that we understand what it means to be his disciples. So I begin reading in Luke chapter 3 and verse 21. The Bible says when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. As he was praying, heaven opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in a physical appearance like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. As he began his ministry, Jesus was about 30 years old. All four gospels record this event in the life of Jesus, which marked out the beginning of his public ministry. Luke's is the most brief and condensed version of the account of the baptism of Jesus. Luke does not provide us with a particular location as to where the baptism took place. 
Luke doesn't tell us how many people gathered there in the crowd that day as Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. He does not provide us any direct evidence in terms of the purpose for which Jesus was baptized, even though we get insight into that by the very presence of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit at the event. But what we learn from the parallel accounts in the Gospels is that Jesus came from Galilee to John the Baptist at the Jordan to be baptized. I want to read John's account, and then I'm also going to make reference to Matthew's account as we go along here this morning. But here's what John the disciple wrote in John chapter 1 and verse 29 and following. It says, the next day, John, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified. I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he rested on him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me, the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God of God. The purpose of the baptism of Jesus was to anoint Jesus publicly as the Messiah as he assumed that role in his ministry and also to authenticate his ministry. What better way to authenticate his ministry than the presence of the Holy Spirit and the symbol of a dove and the voice of God the Father from heaven as we'll see and consider here in just a few moments. The Messiah had arrived on the scene to inaugurate his ministry with baptism. And this divine confirmation of his identity uh, tells us something about him, as does this genealogy that we'll consider toward the end of the message, which serves as a claim to his Messiahship. It's the ancestral outworking of what God had done to bring about his purposes for his eternal glory. And remember the description of the events by John the Baptist, according to what Luke tells us here. Luke is bookending, in a sense, the ministry of John the Baptist, and he's making a clear transition now to the ministry of Jesus. And I think that's in part why he does this so quickly. He just gives us the very bare bones uh, illustration of what happened in the baptism, because he's saying the ministry of John the Baptist is now over. And the ministry of Jesus publicly has now begun his role as the Messiah. So what is the significance of the baptism of Jesus as a testimony? That's what I want us to spend our time on here uh, for these next few minutes. The first part of this is that the baptism of Jesus is a testimony of obedience. It's a testimony of obedience. Now notice here that the scripture says uh, that this happened as Jesus was praying. Here is John the Baptist with the people who have gathered, witnessing the submission of God the Son to God the Father in prayer. And it would be easy at this point for us to just jump in and begin to talk about the baptism itself. 
But it's no accident here that Luke has told us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that Jesus was praying. You see, the prayer life of Jesus was central to his life and his ministry on this earth. Jesus began his ministry in prayer, as we have the witness of here. Jesus concluded his ministry on this earth in prayer when he said to the Father, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And everything in between in the life of Jesus was saturated with prayer. There are many examples of Jesus praying in the Bible. Jesus prayed at different times. There were examples of Jesus rising early in the morning and going away to pray, having risen a long time before daylight. There are examples of Jesus praying during the day. There are examples of Jesus praying at night. And not only did Jesus pray at different times, but Jesus also prayed in different places. There are examples of Jesus praying in the mountains and in the wilderness and in the city and even on the cross. His prayer life was not limited to a particular time and it was not limited to a particular place. And Luke presents Jesus to us throughout this gospel as praying at significant times uh, in his ministry, important turning points in his ministry, if you will. Here at his baptism, after the cleansing of a leper, before the calling of the 12 disciples, uh, before Peter's confession, at the transfiguration, uh, before teaching the disciples to pray in the garden, on the cross, with his last breath, Jesus prayed. And that must be important to us if we want to be like Jesus because Jesus is our example in prayer. And there were times, clearly, that Jesus prayed publicly in the sight of others, and the baptism of Jesus was one of those instances. Now, why did Jesus come for baptism to John the Baptist if John the Baptist's baptism represented a baptism of repentance? After all, Jesus was sinless. So he was not symbolizing that he had been forgiven of his sins. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus came in obedience because through his infancy, his childhood, his adolescence, and into adulthood, Jesus grew from grace to grace, from holiness to holiness, in subjection to the will of the Father without a single hint of sin. He purposefully always did what was righteous. And the very trajectory and the goal of his life was that he would fulfill all righteousness by giving his life in our place, the just for the unjust the righteous for the unrighteous, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I'd be remiss here at this point to talk only about the historical examples of Jesus praying and the importance of his prayer life. I also want to make reference to Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25 and 26, because the Bible says that Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. For this is the kind of high priest we need, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So the blessing for us today in terms of the prayer life of Jesus is to know not only did Jesus pray, but Jesus prays continually 
for you. He lives to make intercession for you. So that when you feel like you're alone, you're not alone. Jesus is praying for you. When you have failed and you think that there's not a step forward, there is a step forward because Jesus is praying for you. When you have a burden that feels like you cannot carry it and the weight has become too heavy and you don't know what to do, Jesus is praying for you. When you need wisdom for a situation and you don't know what the answer is and you don't know what to do next, God will help you with that because Jesus is praying for you. This is our Savior. And the prayer life of Jesus should be something that we model our own prayer life after. In the baptism of Jesus, pointed sinners to the Savior. Now Matthew references in his gospel that when Jesus came to John the Baptist, uh, that John the Baptist objected to Jesus being baptized by him because he felt that he needed to be baptized first by Jesus. And here's what Jesus said to him. Let it be so for now, or now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. He was doing in obedience what he knew he needed to do. So the reason Jesus was baptized was to inaugurate his public ministry and to do everything that was right. Jesus was committed not to sin. Jesus always turned away from it. He committed himself to trust in God the Father. But now let's go a layer deeper here and let's think about what is actually taking place in the event of the baptism. What kind of baptism is it? What does the Bible teach us about baptism? What should we do if we want to be baptized like Jesus? How would we know that? Well, the text gives us information about that. There are two words that are used in the New Testament as it relates to baptism. One is bapto, the other is baptizo. Bapto is used only four times in the New Testament, and it meant to immerse something, to dip something into, like when they would take cloths and they would dip it into a certain dye in order to take the garment that was being dyed and turn it into the color that they wanted it to be turned into. Baptizo is used again and again in the New Testament, and what it means is to immerse. It is used to refer to someone who has trusted in Jesus for salvation and then to be immersed into water. There was a totally different word that was used for sprinkling, and there is no hint or evidence whatsoever in the Bible of sprinkling. When you find baptism in the Bible, as we do here with Jesus, it simply means to immerse. It always means to immerse. It never means anything else but to immerse in the New Testament. So we want to follow the record of Scripture. We don't want to follow what our own particular preference is. We don't want to follow what would be more convenient. We don't want to follow the construct of man. We want to follow the Bible. And if we follow the Bible, then we will be baptized in the way that Jesus was baptized. In fact, Matthew chapter 3 and verse 16 says, when Jesus was baptized, when he was immersed, he went up immediately from the water. It says in John chapter 3 and verse 23 that John was baptizing and he picked a spot of the Jordan that had enough water in order to baptize. In Acts chapter 8, Philip came upon the Ethiopian eunuch 
And in verse 36, it says, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And he ordered the chariot to stop. They both went down into the water and he baptized him. Same word. He immersed him in the water. There is no such thing in the Bible as sprinkling or pouring on. And there's certainly no such thing in the Bible as the baptizing of infants. It is drawn from an inference in scripture where the entire household was baptized, which is nothing more than a stretch to fit our own construct. It is not what the Bible teaches. And I say that not to offend you, but I simply say that to you to say, if you want to obey Jesus, you ought to be concerned not what about this preacher says, you ought to be concerned about what the Bible says. And if you want to obey Jesus, then you need to follow what the Bible says. Not what a particular church thinks or does, but what the Lord himself has given us the example of. The symbolism of baptism is one of obedience in the sense that we are dying and being buried and rising again. So baptism is a physical illustration of a spiritual reality. So what it is, is it's an outward sign that's showing us what has taken place in our hearts. And, and let me be absolutely clear at this point. Baptism does not save you. It does not make you more saved. But it is the step of providing a testimony to Jesus that we're called upon to do in the Bible as an act of obedience because we've been saved. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 6 of the spiritual uh, reality. Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. And I would add that at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, when he was preparing to ascend back into heaven to the presence of God the Father and to be seated at the right hand of the throne of God, that he gave us the great commission. He told his disciples what the marching orders of the church were to be about. And you know it, you've heard it many times. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18 and following, Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples. Make disciples is the imperative. As you're going is the way that we're doing it. And we're to make disciples of all nations. And what are we to do? We're to baptize them. Same word from the mouth of Jesus. We're to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And we're to teach them to observe everything that Jesus has commanded. And remember, Jesus is with us even to the end of the age. Now, don't miss this connection here. This is an important connection. If, in fact, Jesus instructed us on the marching orders of the church... And if, in fact, baptism is a commandment from Jesus, which it is in the Great Commission, then Jesus has said in John 14 and verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commands. So our willingness to be baptized is an expression of our love for Jesus. In fact, all of our obedience should be an expression of our love for Jesus. It should never be that someone has guilted you into doing something or they've put the pressure on you just because it's something that you should do. It should be motivated because you love Jesus. And because you love Jesus, you want to obey him. 
And I think there are several kinds of people here today. I think there are people who obviously have understood the gospel and have been saved and their testimony is one of obedience because they've been baptized in believer's baptism. That's probably the great majority of us here in this room. There are other people who have not yet been saved because you've not yet believed in the gospel and entrusted your life to Jesus Christ. That's the first step. So for some of you today, God might just be saying to you, this is the gospel in my son. He lived and died and now lives again. And he died in your place so that you could be forgiven, so that you could have eternal life, and so that you could live for God and someday eternally live with God. And if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And some of you today need to be saved. But there are also some of you here who have already been saved, but for whatever reason, you've never been baptized. Now, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt because maybe you've not properly understood what the New Testament taught about baptism, so therefore you've never followed through. Maybe you were subject to some false teaching somewhere along the way in a church that told you it was not important or it wasn't anything that you needed to be concerned with. And if either of those are the case, you can correct your wrong understanding or your lack of understanding by simply believing what the Bible is teaching. But then I also suspect there's some people here today who have said yes to Jesus, but who are emphatically saying no to Jesus in baptism because you are defiant and unwilling to obey Jesus. I can't convince you otherwise but I will certainly challenge you from the Bible to listen and to see what we find here in the Word of God and to ask you the question, have you been baptized in a biblical mode of baptism as a testimony of your obedience to Jesus? And if you haven't, why haven't you? Would you not want to obey what Jesus has said to do? Do you not want to be like Jesus? This is our motivation, to be like our Lord. And then the second part of the significance of the baptism of Jesus is that the baptism of Jesus is a testimony to the triune God. In this baptism, we find God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Here's what our statement of faith says in part in relation to the triune God. The eternal triune God reveals himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with distinct personal attributes but without division of nature, essence, or being. Now make no mistake about it. When Jesus became a man, he did not lay aside his deity. There was no diminishing of who Jesus was when he came to this earth. There was no lessening of the power of Jesus as uh, part of the triune Godhead. In his humanity, he was anointed for service and he was granted strength for ministry. And right after Jesus made his commitment to do the will of the Father in baptism and to be the suffering servant for the sins of the world, the Bible says here that the Spirit of God descended like a dove. Now this descending of the dove is interesting because the dove is understood in uh, several different ways in the Bible. Uh, in the Old Testament, it's certainly presented as a, a presentation of peace in, in the presence of God as far as being among the people in worship. 
But this is the only time that the dove is ever represented this way in the Bible. In other words, we see it on the sympathy cards, and may we see it on the encouragement cards, and may we see it on a piece of jewelry, or may we see it on some other uh, representation, but this is the only time that the Spirit is represented this way in the Scripture. And the symbol of the dove was often used uh, as one of sacrifice. And I think that's part of the overtone here in this account of the baptism of Jesus. In fact, the book of Leviticus explains how doves were uh, acceptable sacrifices for people who had less from the common people who couldn't afford something more substantial like a bull or a goat to be sacrificed to the Lord. And they would sacrifice a dove, which was acceptable to the Lord as a, a sacrifice offering. Uh, and the symbol of the dove also represented anointing because the Holy Spirit's presence in the Old Testament uh, were in times of, was in times of anointing where prophets and priests and kings uh, the Holy Spirit would uh, make an appearance and be present as they were anointed for a particular task to accomplish the work that they were doing. And in his humanity, Christ was dependent on the Holy Spirit in his ministry. In fact, we're going to see this in uh, the, actually the passage that follows where we look at the temptation of Jesus because it was in the temptation of Jesus that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the enemy. And it was by the power of the Spirit that he overcame that. So we see this evidence of the triune God, and the baptism of Jesus is a testimony to the triune God. Uh, the foundation of baptism is Trinitarian. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are present in all four accounts of the Gospels in the baptism of Jesus. The invitation to baptism is Trinitarian, as I've already mentioned, where Jesus extended the Great Commission to his disciples and uh, to us as the church is Trinitarian in nature baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the power in baptism is Trinitarian as well. And that leads me to the third part of the significance here. The baptism of Jesus is a testimony of blessing. Notice again what it says about the voice that came from heaven in verse uh, 22. You are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. To speak of Jesus as beloved points to both the depth and the richness of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. The blessing that was upon our Lord. And it reminds us that to be well-pleased was only possible for God the Father in relation to God the Son. And the reason it was only possible in Him is because of His imperfection. He was perfect in every way. There was no imperfection whatsoever in His life. He was completely perfect and thoroughly perfect in every way. Unlike us, it's our imperfection that makes it impossible for us to be acceptable to God, but it's the perfection of Jesus that makes it possible for him to be spoken of as beloved and accepted. And I'm going to get to this a, a little bit more in depth as I go through this idea here, but this is part of what the gospel is. This is part of why it's good news that God is well pleased with you 
because you've accepted his son and he is well pleased in him. And you know, we search out for identity in so many things. We search out for identity in, in our vocations and in our intellect and in the things that we're capable of doing. And even in what we do for God sometimes. We try to find our identity. And God is saying he's pleased with his son. And in him, God is pleased with us. That your identity is not found in what you do. Your acceptance to God, friend, is not found in what you do. Your identity and your acceptance to God is found in who you are. As a child of God. Now it's interesting, these words that came from heaven that there are a couple of references uh, to two Old Testament passages. And one of the things I would encourage you to do as you, as you study the Bible is, yes, read the plain meaning, read the obvious text that is in front of you. But if you're studying it and you find that there is a direct reference or an inference to another passage in the Old Testament, you want to look at that because what the Bible is doing is essentially giving you a, a ready-made Bible study. It's, it's pulling together the different pieces of the Bible for your understanding so that you can connect the truth of what God is saying. And there are two passages that are referenced here. One is Psalm 2 and verse 7, where the Bible says, I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And then Isaiah 42 and verse 1, this is my servant. I strengthen him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. I've put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. Why does that matter? Because both Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42 are messianic passages. They're putting the pieces together about Jesus as the divine son and the suffering servant. So when he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, he was pleased with his incarnation. He was pleased with his life. He was pleased with the suffering that he would undertake. He was pleased with his ministry on the earth. And here's where the connection comes in for us. Yes, the heavens opened and the words of God the Father came down to God the Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But it extends to us when we are in Christ. And this is what I'm telling you is the best news of all. Because in Jesus, we are declared righteous. And because we are declared righteous, we are accepted by God. That's what justification by faith is all about. Yes, it's a legal transaction. Yes, it is a declaration by God himself. But it's even more than that. It is God looking at us and seeing us, not as the sinners that we were. It is God looking at us and seeing us through the perfect righteousness and holiness of his son and saying, you are accepted. You're my beloved because you're in Christ. And that's good news. That it's not about how hard you try that makes you acceptable to God. Yes, you want to serve God with all that you have. It's not about how much you give that makes you acceptable to God. It's not about all these external things that we do because we love the Lord and we're motivated by our love for the Lord. It's because of our standing. And that standing is unshakable, it is unchangeable, it is inalterable. And in Jesus, we can hear the Father say to us, in you I am well pleased. This is my child whom I love. 
And it's in Jesus that the Holy Spirit can come upon us for empowering and for blessing. So baptism reflects our position in Christ and it affirms the blessings of the Father on us as his children. So think about these blessings that you have because you are in Christ, if you are in Christ. In Jesus, you have access to God. Think about it. That you can come boldly before the throne of God because you're invited to come boldly before the throne of God through the blood of Jesus that that you have access 24 hours a day, seven days a week. There's never a time when you do not have access to the throne room of the universe because Jesus has made the way for you. You have access to God. The heavens have been opened to us. In Jesus, you have the blessing of the presence of the Holy Spirit. That moment when you believe you are indwelled with the Holy Spirit. And then from that point forward, you're to keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit, meaning that you're to keep on yielding your life to the Holy Spirit so that you're a useful servant of the Lord. And in Jesus, you have the blessing of the approval of God as your Father. He is well pleased. And that's a great blessing. Now I'm going to give you this last idea and we're going to close. God is faithful to fulfill his purposes for his eternal glory. Now, I'm not going to take time to read the genealogy here uh, from verse uh, 23 and on. You can read that for yourself. It says simply in verse 23, as he began his ministry, Jesus was about 30 years old. So you want to know where did we get the idea that Jesus was about 30 years old from the Bible? That's where we got it from. He tells us right here. But here's what I find interesting about this genealogy. And, and this stood out to me in a way that I never had before when, when I began to read it and think through it. What follows here is a detailed genealogy. But you know how genealogies are typically given? They're given from back to front, in a sense. This one's given in a reverse order because it ends with God. And that's interesting because what Jesus has done here is he has exercised his perfect and eternal sonship. And yes, he's given us the connection here of all the earthly ancestors and the tie-in with prophecy and the fulfillment of the promise. Yes, all of that is important. But here's what stood out to me. Jesus took on Adam's and our flawed sonship in order to redeem it. Romans chapter 5 and verse 17 says, For it, by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So here's what I'm communicating to you. Christ, the Son of God, became a son of Adam that we, the sons of Adam, might become the sons of God. That's what that genealogy is referring to. That he stepped in in fulfillment to the prophecy, yes. In completion of the promise, yes. But completing for us what we could not do on our own. And I love the way Jonathan Pennington put it. He said, Jesus was baptized as a sign of his wholehearted obedience. And so too we follow his example. But then listen to what he says. We don't simply get baptized because he did. We're baptized into him, and he baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. 
So in other words, we don't just take a a reductionist approach to baptism as though it's not all that important or though it doesn't have biblical significance. We're not just saying, well, you should be baptized because Jesus was baptized. And that's our full understanding of what baptism is. That's, That's not the full point. The full point is of what God has done through his son in his life in the cross, in the resurrection, and in his presence even now. In the fact that we want to identify our lives with Jesus so that it is a public testimony of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that we want to obey him, that we want to honor him, and that we want to live our lives for him by the power of the Spirit. Because there is an exchange that has taken place. There's an illustration that comes out of World War I from a French writer who told of a conversation that he had heard in a trench full of wounded men during the first world war one of the men in the trench who knew that he only had minutes to live says to another man who's there in the trench with him listen dominic you've led a very bad life everywhere you are wanted by the police but there are no convictions against me My name is clear, so here, take my wallet, take my papers, take my identity, take on my good name, and hand me your papers so that I can take away your crimes into death. In an eternal sense, that's what Jesus has done for us. We stand guilty. And Jesus says, I take that upon myself so that you can be declared righteous in God. That's what he's done for us. Have you come to follow Jesus as his disciple? I hope so. If you haven't, today's a good day to take that step of faith. And then have you been baptized as Jesus was baptized? If you haven't, today would be a good day to make that commitment. And here's what I'm asking you to do. In just a few moments, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. I'll be here to receive you as the service concludes. And then I'll be here for a few moments afterwards. But all I'm asking you about this baptism, I'm not putting any kind of pressure on you at all, but here's what I'm asking you about this baptism. Do you want to be like Jesus? That's all I'm asking you. Do you want to be like Jesus? Do you want to do what Jesus has said to do? And do you want to follow him in the way that he said to follow? And if you do, that means you need to be baptized as Jesus was baptized upon profession of faith in him. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray. Almighty God, thank you for this insight into what was a holy moment in the life of Jesus. We take this testimony upon the truth of your word that we have been given an accurate, clear presentation of what happened when our Savior and Lord offered himself to be baptized by John the Baptist. Forgive us for minimizing the significance of what baptism is all about. 
we thank you that we are first baptized in the Spirit through faith in the Son and that we are declared righteous in Him. But we thank you that we have a way that we can publicly identify our lives with Him through baptism. And I pray that we would never reduce that in its importance or in our understanding of it. I thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ who uh, have taken that step of obedience. And Lord, I, even as I preach a message like this, I think back to, to over 40 years ago when I was baptized in believer's baptism. And God, I'm blessed by that. And I'm reminded of what a blessing it was to not only say yes to Jesus, but to not be ashamed of him before people. And I pray now as you move in hearts that if there's some who need Christ, that today would be the day that they would come to that point of salvation. If there's some who need to be baptized who haven't yet for whatever reason, that, that they would come as this service concludes and even after and just say, I, I want to be like Jesus. I want to identify my life with him. Lord, may your spirit work in our hearts because you're the only one that can lead us to a point of, of faithfulness. We give this time over to you, and we ask you, Lord, that you would be honored and we would be blessed. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.